Welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Kat. And I'm Rich. In this episode, we're breaking your mama's heart with 2023's documentary film Wham! directed by Chris Smith. This movie marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Wham!'s debut album Fantastic and centres around the relationship between Andrew Ridgely and George Michael, how they came to be pals, how they flourished together as a creative partnership, and how, in the space of just a few years, they became the ultimate pop-embracing, sportswear-clad, sunshine-fueled global phenomenon. Club Tropicana drinks are free, but can you put a price on true friendship? So is this our first documentary film that we've covered, Rich? I think it is. It is. We're, we're broadening our horizons. And um, what better way than into the very cat and rich, friendly and environment of 80s pop music. The, the archive footage that they've got access to in making this, it shows they're not just a pop band. They were the best of friends um, before, during and probably presumably after to some extent as well and and it really goes really deep you know there's a lot of stuff pre-wham and, and really seeing how that friendship goes from you know schoolboys all the way up to to grown men and you know in, in one case one of the biggest hyper global mega stars of all time yeah i mean i think it makes you realize when you're watching it how many films there are stories there are about uh people that get together to do something creative and how like so much of the time it's almost impossible in the end to stay on good terms and for people's egos not to clash to the point where the relationship kind of disintegrates and something that's so affecting about this film is how it shows yeah, as you say, two people that meet when they're at school and they have a bond and how they complement each other to such a degree that they're somehow able to, you know, do something so massive in such a short, short space of time and without destroying the good feeling between them in the process, which is so much more rare than one might think. Yeah, because I think what, what you see over the course of of the, the documentary and, and, and I guess of, of the life of, of Wham as well is that you see the, the shifting of the fact that at the beginning Andrew was the, the the drive as such but he was the leader in a way and I think they, they were very much a partnership in that way and to see how George's both talent and ego grew exponentially in that period of time but um, you know, without jumping too much to the end, I mean, we're talking about something that happened nearly 40 years ago. You see that even at the end, when George's solo career goes massive, Andrew's still this supportive guy. He's not openly, you know, there, there is some odd comments. I think, was it a clip on, was it Wogan? Maybe, I think, I can't remember. Where he, he did look a little bit peeved. But in the backing of the performance at Live Aid, when he was singing with Elton John and Andrew looks like, you know, the proud dad, you know, he's so proud of his friend and how far he's gone. And even though this is kind of the end of his road as a, you know, as a, as a member of Wham as such, he's still, you know, there front row seats looking at this moment of massive pop culture and being able to be, you know, magnanimous and thinking that's my friend. Um, and there isn't that, openly again bitterness and, and that kind of thing that you kind of would associate i mean we're you know th this isn't this is spinal tap in any way 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that those moments, as as you're describing on programs like Wogan, the 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 look on his face. It could be interpreted as just someone who's feeling a little bit uncomfortable because there's a few instances. I think they have an interview with Paul Yates. They have an interview with Terry Wogan. There's a couple of other examples where the interviewer kind of calls attention to the fact that, you know, they sort of say things like, you know, are you all right? Sort of thing. You can see that he, like anyone else, would find those moments really difficult. And yet he doesn't let it sort of descend into as you say bitterness doesn't let it kind of overcome him and I think that's yeah it's very it's quite inspiring when I was watching it I was thinking yeah it makes you it makes you try and think I should try and be a better friend to people like try and be a little bit more like Andrew (laughs) you know I think this is what we're seeing here is because this isn't fiction and this isn't being played up for for effect or drama you know we're actually seeing real life people and even though yes they at the time were huge celebrities and, and household names they're still people at the end of the day and and this is how people are and I guess you know if you've gone on this massive intense roller coaster from North London schoolboys to you know the, the pop kings of well Great Britain and, and subsequently the US and all of a sudden you know, we're in an age where George Michael wants to go off and, and rival in his way. You know, we're in that era of Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson. He wants to be that level. And looking back, you know, it is a running joke, I guess. People always look at Wham as George Michael and his mate, which is incredibly harsh now that you, especially now that you've watched this. Totally, um, totally. You know, and, and that's... These days, Andrew, you know, does come across generally really well when when he does get interviewed and, and then this and, and other things. And since George died, I think, you know, people are reassessing that a little bit. But, you know, we, we do have to kind of bear in mind again that, you know, even Andrew on both the archive footage and the, the things that were made and recorded later on, you know, fully admit that, you know, while at the beginning he was a, an equal and, and driving a lot of the... The, the behind the scenes stuff and the push in the band, you know, ultimately, you know, sometimes you just have to accept your place in life and in the pecking order of reality and kind of think, yeah, you're doing, you're in a band with George Michael, of course, this is going to happen. Yeah, I think that's true. But at the same time, I think that once you get a bit older and you look at how life can treat everyone and, um, what can happen once people are under certain pressures at the end of this film you're kind of I don't know about you but on the one hand you're right in that George Michael obviously sort of you know leaves a legacy of being one of the biggest pop stars in the world and you know what an incredible talent Uh, but in terms of just uh, like how a person moves through life and how easy they're finding it to move through life and how much sort of, you know, happiness they're able to feel from day to day. Andrew originally got to feel what it was like to play that, you know, final stadium gig in front of an absolutely adoring crowd and got to tour America and be that huge a moment in life, I think, when you probably can really enjoy it in the sense that they were very young and 
were having fun with it and they had their friend with them. And then, you know, he got to kind of maybe live a little bit more of an ordinary life. Yes, he he was there. He got to live it. And let's be honest, he's probably living a reasonably comfortable life off the back of their exploits. You know, when you look at George Michael's life before, during and, and after and all the stories about him since since he passed and, and, you know, towards the end of his life when he kind of faded from public view a little bit, you know, almost everyone has a positive word to say about what a nice person he was. He's someone that, yes, he was at the top of his game for many, many years and yet by all accounts behind the scenes in his private life wasn't really affected. But he had he had a lot of issues. But yeah, it's it's difficult, isn't it? And you know, to, to be Andrew Ridgely and like you say, to live that and, and to be there with your friend, having these experiences that almost no one in the world will be able to reference because they haven't lived that. They might have seen it from afar, but you know, you look at the massive cultural impact of Wham, you know, where their music's gone and you know, I guess how deep into culture it was. And and this is what the, the documentary kind of poked at me is that I kind of had no idea really the Wham era as such was relatively short. Yeah. You know, when when the final gig was was at the end of June eighty six. And that was again, you know, a, a while after things were starting to to come to a point where George was effectively a solo artist. So this wasn't a, a long period of time, and yet, you know, we this documentary was massive at the time it was released, and people love reliving it. And I guess you know, Wham! Are that one of the great components of a band that can you could cross while they had a, a pop sensibility, they they had the elements that we saw before. I mean, I, I had very little idea that their opening songs were more commentary kind of stuff around the state of the country at the time is it the wham rap yes the, the the line around the dhss and there's one for the kids but it's just um and then you kind of think of them as just these kind of cheesy pop stars and now they're talking about the state of the nation in the uk in the 80s yes yeah, open my eyes massively hey everybody take a look at me i've got street credibility i may not have a job but i have a good time with the boys that i meet They started off, as you say, sort of with this social commentary. And I really like Wham Rap. I've always thought that it's just a really interesting, funny record. And what a kind of bizarre, in a brilliant way, debut a uh, single for for this boy band to put out and then um following up with young guns as well you know that that performance on top of the pops is just so theatrical and unusual and like you know just um fill, filled with kind of exuberance or something and i've always really enjoyed watching that and you sort of appreciate now uh, with a bit more perspective how how kind of um you know, yeah, quietly innovative they were being when they first came along. And uh, and the thing is, we cover romantic comedies a lot on this podcast. And, and one thing that I really like about the story of Wham! is that there is that moment of when they meet each other in the classroom 
that really feels like the inciting incident in a kind of romantic comedy, doesn't it? It's sort of like the moment where everything changes that, you know, if Andrew hadn't put his hand up and said, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of the new boy, that they wouldn't have gone on to, you know, live this story together. And that kind of echoes so many of the patterns of the of the tales that we deal with, doesn't it? Yeah, it's that kind of butterfly effect thing, isn't it? Where it's just kind of... You know, if, if he hadn't put his hand up and all these kind of things where in an alternate universe somewhere that didn't happen and we never got wham and then we never got anything else that came after it because George Michael, let's be honest, probably didn't go on to do what he did. Yeah, and, definitely. You know, so um, it's just a strange kind of thing where these stories all hinge people in real life and, and fake talk about you know the, the moment they got their big break or where it all started and whether it's, you know, the the kind of corny X Factor stuff of people saying, oh, it's always been my dream to do this and all that stuff. Whereas, you know, these were two guys in secondary school who just became best mates because of their their link and the way that it all started. And, you know, that that's how it happens. And, you know, because one of them had the confidence to say yes. Yeah. And that, that, that's where it all goes. And, and again, when, when you're talking about that Top of the Pops performance that was what late 82 i think yes yes strange obviously like again keeping in the the music top of the pops thing and i know like um i I was listening to recently the the audio book of the autobiography of stephen morris from new order and they were talking about their performance of of blue monday on top of the pop (laughs) yeah notorious and i think that would have been early 83 spring 83 probably yeah. so you're thinking that within six months after this so no matter what kind of era they're in they're roughly following that wham performance yeah and everything after that wham performance is going to be <laughs> measured against that and it's just kind of a, a strange position to be in and, and i guess i'm you know history says i'm very much a fan of one rather than the other but still watching that was just like wow it was like, in a way, was that that clip of Boyzone when they first were on Irish TV, when they yes. were doing that kind of gyrating and kind of stuff? But this was actually fun, whereas the other one was just cringy, awful. God, that was awful, wasn't it? But um, <laughs> but, um but yeah, and, and it's just a, a fantastic way of seeing, you know, where they go, how they started from doing demos, and and again, you know, you hear those demos of like the early demos of Careless Whisper that they had on their tapes and things like that. You know, that song had been years in the making before it made, before it made it out. And some of the, the journey that they've been on together is, um, yeah, it's a fascinating one. And you went to school in North London, didn't you? Do you have any insight into what their experience would have been as, as schoolboys? I guess, I mean, I suppose I would have been secondary school, yeah, early 90s. But it would have been similar, I suppose. I mean, it's that part of North London where... There were people, you know, sort of middle class types, not me. Um, but it was trying to, you know, whether it's starting bands or being creative. Um, and I guess they must have been doing well because all the stuff that they filmed for the for the archive stuff of the documentary, them putting on their skits and shows and, you know, photogra- photographing everything that they were doing because conveniently, and it worked out really nicely for the documentary, that there were scrapbooks. Yeah, compiled by... Andrew's mum I think which I found very charming I love the fact that the whole documentary is structured around 
a fond mother's <laughs> diligent scrapbooking. I think that's marvellous. Yeah, well, that's very North London, well, I suppose, mum of anywhere, but pr- proud of her boy. Yeah. Um, but then, you again, you get the, the kind of the opposite of that when you're talking about George and his father because you've got a proud mum recording the scrapbook and everything, and yet George, you know, really took a while for his dad to really get on board with the success that he did, um, that he achieved. Yeah, I think he says, doesn't he? It's like it's only when uh, they're touring America to kind of, you know, these these arenas and stuff that they have his dad kind of going, and it was at that point that I did a bit of a U-turn. I was like, well done, George. <laughs> it's like, God, it, it took quite a lot <laughs> To impress his dad, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew I knew several people who'd be in that boat where they'd be like, you know, their parent wanted them to be a doctor, or I think he said doctor or an accountant was were the two kind of dream jobs. Yeah, um, and then seeing sort of, I think they were showing it around the time they did a gig in Miami or something like that, and you just kind of think like, yeah, that that was the point. You kind of think, okay, well, you know, maybe if they hadn't sold as many tickets that night or something, you know, was was that really the kind of <laughs> the, the tipping point for it all? But um... well, this is what makes this story so rich in terms of its relationships because you have Andrew being perceived as a really bad influence in George's life from his parents' perspective. You sort of realise that that combination of having a friend who's both supportive but maybe kind of galvanizes you a little bit because your parents disapprove of him that's that can be sometimes like a, a quite a good combination because sometimes rebelling a little bit from um the confines of how you've been raised can be quite a positive influence on creativity i think in in some ways you know it's quite an interesting story in that way because i think now we're much more i don't want to speak for the younger generation but i think that you know they they're perceived now young people as being a little bit more sensible than the wham boys would have been perceived as it you know that they that they think more seriously early on about their careers and how to how to live kind of non-bad boy kind of lives <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah but then i guess these days you know kids have their tiktoks and want to be on love island and stuff as yes it, that's it, true it, yeah of course i think so sound, sounded like the old man is um but uh but yeah i i guess you know these things are cyclical and when you look at the fact that you know back back then things were different, you know, we didn't have internet or, or much exposure to TV and things like that, whereas now we do, um, and yet people are still doing that kind of stuff. They're doing it in different ways. You know, they're they're able to upload videos of themselves doing stuff on YouTube and things like that. But it's uh, it's still, I'm sure they they still have the points where there's oh he's a bad influence on my boy and all that kind of oh, stuff yeah so, yeah completely so, yeah so i guess uh you know so, some things never change yes yes that's true i mean i think that 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 aspect of andrew where he is this interesting combination of being uh you know kind of like a i think his i think george's dad describes him as being a really cocky boy on one of his school reports it said that he was disruptive and things that that feeling about him of being both secure in himself but at the same time you know quite cheeky and also just laid back in the way that George wasn't which meant that he was able to allow George to kind of take over the songwriting and um, producing without kind of getting in his way there's a really 
interesting combination. I think it kind of reminds me a little bit of when I was watching Get Back and um, there's the whole debate between the Beatles and um, Get Back about whether or not they're going to do this gig on the roof. And there's a bit where sort of George Harrison is saying, I don't want to go on the roof, I don't want to go on the roof. And, and Ringo sort of in, interjects with, I want to go on the roof. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, and, Andrew's a bit like Ringo in his, I want to go on the roof stunts. It's that, it's that kind of vibe. And, and you do, you can sort of see sometimes with bands, it's like, yeah, you need, you do need these different factors in order to make magic happen. You can't just have two people that are exactly the same. Other people need to be around to diffuse some of the tension. You know? It's easy to picture Wham! as a two-piece because that's how they were marketed and obviously essentially that's, that's how they were. But when you think about the music itself and, and the videos and the fact that yeah. you know, the, the bass on Club Tropicana is essential, that's what gives it the feeling, that's what gives it that kind of memorable note and, and all this stuff that it's not just the two of them because you've got to put all these other parts together behind the scenes. Um, they're great songs and they, what they put together to make them work was fantastic. And, and I know they did have that kind of in the documentary, that kind of almost they're having to go through that rite of passage of realizing that, Oh, we're not making any money. We've got to change our management. And that's yes. kind of like, you know, that that's almost what every band has to go through at some point. But again, they, they did that and, and it worked for them. And I think, you know, you, you feel bad. They weren't being exploited as such, but that's just how things were. But then, you know, it says a lot about me that I recognise that greasy spoon where they signed the contract. Oh, how fantastic. I think, well, the one they put image on the film of anyway was on Holloway Road. So, um, yeah. you know, they're not just a, po- a cheesy pop group. You know, they were competing as well in that era you know, both inspired by, you know, they, they said about being inspired by the Human League, which is a, a nice little touch for, for us and our, our pod name. But, um, you know, when you think of the era of music they're coming out of as well, that whole kind of punk era was was not long before this. And going into the 80s, which is one of the like seminal decades, it's just such a roller coaster to be on. And while they don't go into a a broad, massive amount of detail around who was around them at the time, other than some images of the charts and stuff. But you do kind of get this nostalgia for the era that, you know, it's almost like you're there again. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, I think that you appreciate maybe a bit more that they were having influence on bands around them that you might not necessarily have thought of before. Like I was thinking about how that performance of Young Guns, DC Lee was the dancer along with Shirley in that performance. And um, she went on to be in the Style Council. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that that got me thinking. And I thought, actually, the video for Long Hot Summer by the Style Council, which comes out the year after that Young Guns performance, that might have been a little bit influenced by 
wham because you know it's got them them kind of frolicking in cambridge and um with bare feet and um jeans and and you know and paul weller kind of uh giving off a very different kind of vibe and look and um soul influence to what he was giving with the jam and um yeah, you think maybe maybe Wham actually had a little bit more of a knock-on effect on some of the music around them than they were given credit for. I never felt that our music defined me in the same way that it did for George. As a young gay man, I was just uncomfortable because I was closeted. For George, chart position was the ultimate validation. They reference it a bit in the documentary about how um, he kind of realised he was gay when around the time they were filming Club Tropicana. And yet he didn't come out. I mean, the incident in, in L.A. was that kind of 97, 98, I think it was. Yeah, I think it's 98, yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, for, for 14, 15 years, he was living basically as, as a different person. And then obviously, when that happened, I mean, the British press aren't at the greatest anyway, but, um, but the fact that, for the most part, people went on to kind of realise that, well, yeah, that's just, you know, that's how he is. And, and look at the music he's still making. That's the thing about, you touched on it just then, the filming of the Club Tropicana video, which I think might be the, if I could have been at any filming of any video, <laughs> that might be one of the ones that I would have liked to have been at. There's a, there's a few shots of George you know, like sipping a cocktail with his sunglasses on in that video where you think this is, like, has anyone looked more like the encapsulation of the 80s than George <laughs> Michael does in this moment? It's really incredible. And, um, yeah, as you say, there's that moment where he's with Shirley and Andrew and and tells them that he's gay and, um, and they have a conversation about that because you sort of realise that you know, Andrew's sharing in, in something quite specific with George that George isn't sharing with a lot of other people and, and that, that makes their bond quite unique as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and one of the things you, you mentioned earlier is your one of your introductions to Wham, but um, something they cover here um, was the filming and the timing of Last Christmas. And, um, and I guess if anyone's listening to this in December and you're playing Whamageddon, um, cover your ears. Can we do that? Fast forward. <laughs> um, but um, but again, it was one of those things that until twenty twenty, I think it it made number one. But it was you kind of realised it didn't get to number one because it was nineteen eighty four. Yeah. And oh, whatever song was Chris? What song was Christmas number one? And if I oh, of course, George Michael was on that as well. But it's um that song now is still, you know, the fact that people play a game around a song, a Christmas song from, from 1984, and then it got re-released and made it to number one in, in 2020. It's an amazing legend of how long that the, the stability kind of factor of it, but also, you know, it is timeless. And, and that video, when they started talking about how it was made and the fact that they were all just getting slowly pissed because they were using real wine, I love knowing that. I'm, I'm so pleased to know that. It's a great <laughs> fact about that video. It's everything I've hoped for. <laughs> and what's better than acting? Doing it for real. Yeah. Everyone else was just thinking how fantastic it is. It's going to be great. It's going to be number one. It's going to be this, that. And I had all those same feelings about it 
but I just had this little bastard ego thing that I just had to keep squashing that was going, shit, 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 shit. Yeah, and I think it's the biggest selling number two in the UK of all time and also the fact that they gave all the proceeds of it um, to the Ethiopian famine relief as well, as along with um, Band-Aid is incredible. And, and to this day, I don't think they've made a penny out of that single. And um, it's a great pop song. So why are people playing this game where they're trying to avoid hearing it? I never <laughs> understand. <laughs> it's like Lent. But they, these aren't Catholic people. They're not denying themselves pleasure. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> exactly. Crazy. Craziness. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but no, I mean, again, that's, you, know, you think of, oh, it's Wham. It's another song by Wham. It's another huge one that everyone knows. Um, and I'd far rather listen to Last Christmas than the, that bloody wizard one. I mean, it's fine for the time, but, you know, you could listen to Last Christmas in the summer and you actually think, yeah, yeah I might actually listen to this all the way through. Yeah, well, I think we might have touched on last Christmas when we were doing our episode on the apartment because mm. we were talking about how um, ideally a really good Christmas song should, you know, classic example being Fairy Tale of New York, should somehow combine an element of joyous quality with pathos because Chris, that's what Christmas feels like, isn't it? It's like this kind of weird combination of heightened emotions and... Um, and yeah, I think Last Christmas does that pretty well. One of the things that you kind of think about that, and I mean, Christmas songs are, are cheesy, but... No, they're not. They're brilliant. <laughs> but they're <good. laughs> you know, people like cheesy. But, it's, um, <laughs> but it, it just goes to show that if you do it right, it's brilliant. And this isn't kind of an about-a-boy novelty song. And I know they kind of mentioned they wanted to do a Christmas song because it was kind of his goal to do was it four four number ones in a year, and uh, yeah. and and <laughs> famously kept off the top event. Well, at the time, anyway. Watching it now and and thinking about that kind of three years really of of hugeness, and it is easy to forget as well. Officially, "Careless Whisper" is a Wham song. You know, it's. Yeah. it's Yes, <laughs> it's, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because it, you just associate it with George Michael. It is kind of presented as being a George Michael song, and yet it's written by the two of them, mm. and it is on a Wham! album, and yet the video presents us, I think, with just George. So, yeah, it is It is a confusing one, that one. It's, it's yeah. always confused me slightly. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, they, they mentioned it when, when they were playing it in America, Wham! featuring George Michael. And I, I mean, I always find that the featuring, you know, the, the extra credits for guests on songs, yeah. you know, the, there's that kind of trend of saying verses, like if it's like a rap thing or something like that. But uh, yeah, like it's weird featuring on your own song. Yes. It's like doing a duet with yourself. Yes. May, maybe it was a decision to try and elevate his name mm. to a point where it was going to be a good jumping off point for a solo career. It must have been something to do with that. So yeah. that people recognise the name George Michael. It must have been a probably a record company decision yeah. on that. Because I mean it would be a strange one if you're used to the the pop sensibilities of Wham and the Club Tropicana and stuff and all of a sudden like, like that comes on next. You're like, oh this this it's Wham, but it doesn't sound like Wham. What's going on? Yeah, I mean I love the ballsiness of that mm. whole story around that song where he goes and gets Jerry Wexler legendary uh, producer of people like Aretha Franklin to go and to go and um, 
produce it and he goes to Muscle Shoals and he gets these really legendary people involved and then he comes back and plays it to Andrew and they agree that you know they're going to do it all again they're not going to go with that version and you think there were like 21 imagine <laughs> imagine having that conviction I think it's at moments like that when you're watching it you think oh yeah he he really was sort of a real one-off George Michael in the sense he had that thing um like Prince and stuff, where they're kind of doing everything themselves and having this perfectionist streak, which was why it was so important for him to meet Andrew, because I can really see how if you have a very self-critical perfectionist streak, it can cripple you to the point where you might never create anything. And that's why he needed that kind of good-humoured, relaxed, encouraging presence in Andrew to to go ahead and do it. But is it like that moment where he's like, so we did it ourselves and, you know, we, we got 10 different sax players in to to do all the different versions until we found the one that we were happy with. And you think, yeah, these people aren't an average boy band, are they? This is something else that we're dealing with here. And these weren't saxophone players who spontaneously combusted or died in a strange gardening accident. Yes, so exactly. All, exactly. Sorry, that's a spe- second spec. <laughs> I think mean, that's fair enough. Yeah, that last Christmas video, as you were saying, has that combination of humor and pain that I really like in George Michael stuff like my favorite George Michael moments I think kind of have that combination like I really love the single fast love because it's on the one hand like a, a, like a wonderful kind of groove but on the other it has this real sort of feeling of pathos to it and I think that's where that was his sweet spot I think that you could really feel quite a lot of pain in his work but at the same time he had such a good sense of humour, particularly when he was with Andrew and um, had a real sort of tongue-in-cheek element to a lot of the stuff that he did. And and that's quite British as well, isn't it? Do you think Do you think we can claim that as being a bit of a characteristic? Of- yeah, most right-minded people got on board with it because it was still brilliant, but it was also that ability to kind of go... He did poke fun at it as well. In a yeah. way, you know, and that's yeah. that is a British thing. And I know, like, you know, that the, there was a, a, a couple of mentions about his kind of second generation immigrant background. I think his parents were Cypriot, I think they were. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's a British thing. You know, he's grown up in Britain in the 70s when, you know, that kind of stuff was done on TV. I mean, we mentioned Benny Hill. I mean, Benny Hill, Dick Emery, all that stuff, massive on British TV. So he would have grown up being influenced by that as well. And being able to go and make it his own, you know, put his own twist on it, you know, it's a, it's a very fun way of reinventing yourself, but, you know, taking things into a new chapter and, um, and going that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that if you, if you think of um, your personality as being kind of formed by lots of different factors and maybe most importantly by, you know, the people that you've, uh, you know, bonded with in your life and spent significant amounts of time with. You've got to sort of think that maybe that moment, as you say, when people tried to kind of shame him um, for for his sexuality, the way he did respond to that with humour and a real sort of level, level-headedness, you've got to sort of think, yeah, there will have been a little bit of that Andrew influence in the way he responded to all of that in the sense that you know when you hear in this documentary his father calling Andrew kind of cocky and you know being a bit of a sort of cheeky influence and stuff you think well it's sort of quite nice to think that maybe all of these people that touch someone's life 
in the end when you come up against something really tough um you know those influences sort of feed into how you might overcome that moment how you get over that hurdle you know the point of the documentary from, from one aspect is to show he's not just george michael the singer he's george michael the teenager who came across you know to look at him in those early that early footage of course it's like a different person yeah and yet he's turned into george michael but you know and and again part of that the the skits the comedy stuff the the behind the scenes being able to laugh at yourself being able seeing him off at rest as it were being himself you know it does inform then the the later or that that period of, of his career and life where you suddenly see this this was probably him as a boy coming out and thinking how do you deal with that situation so i pushed the sportswear look i chose red and for some well, probably because he was colorblind yog chose canary yellow why are shuttlecocks so 80s this is my big question <laughs> badminton feels like an 80s sport doesn't it, it? really does because they had the bit of him kind of you know sort of twir- twirling the shuttlecock around his you know stomach and putting it down his pants and throwing it to the crowd and i kind of thought that's such an 80s thing to have happened i don't know why yeah. i associate those kind of racket sports with that era so much I, know. I suppose it was all part of their sportswear. I was going to ask you about this because mm. I feel as if out of the two of us, you are the sportswear expert <laughs> in a way that I'm not. And I'm, not Andrew... I'm not wearing a tracksuit now. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you're wearing tiny shorts like, wow. Well, um, sure. uh, I bet you are. Uh, and Andrew, yeah, they, they kind of, uh, he doesn't get enough credit for that, I think, is that it sounds as if he was the kind of mastermind behind that whole look, which... Um, which you know is is very distinctive that's kind of what people think of when they think of wham so um yeah did you have any thoughts on the sportswear i I think what made me kind of think about it was looking at that and you look at the brands and the styles that they were wearing i mean not the shorts but like the 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 tracksuit tops they were very much kind of terrace casual stuff that football fans were wearing you know and some of the brand i mean like feeler i think was what was one of them they were wearing and that's the kind of stuff that who football hooligans were wearing and i don't know if this is you know again he's gone out and there, there was no mention of it but to to go and do that and wear that kind of those labels and in that style i mean they weren't going around kicking people behind the back of pubs and stuff like football fans were at the time but but being able to go and say not so much these days i guess but you know in bygone eras of god the 80s you know clothing and style was a big thing you know it was like a group would almost own a kind of style of clothing and to have and I don't know what it would have been like if you're you know in in like you know Chelsea West Ham firm and all of a sudden you look on the telly and Andrew Ridgely's gyrating in the same tracksuit top that you're wearing last night when you were kicking the shit out of someone in the, <laughs> gyrating <laughs> But, I mean, it must have been a very strange experience. When I saw the um, Freedom documentary, at one point he uh, they had footage of George Michael saying that when he uh, was listening to records for the first time in his dad's collection, he found um, some Supremes singles and some Tom Jones singles, and they were two of the artists that he'd listened to as, um, as a young boy. They were quite formative, and, and he said that, 
that was quite funny because he kind of thought of himself as someone that sort of landed somewhere between the Supremes and Tom Jones, which I thought was a very funny and self-deprecating thing to say. Yeah. And, and kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> there, there were definite Tom Jones vibes there. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. you know, as a Welsh person, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and that's the thing. To so many of uh, Wham's great singles, there's just this real Motown influence that comes through really strongly. I mean, you know, that's something that he did really well, I think. George Michael was kind mm. of, um, yeah, his own sort of brand of soul music. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I hope, you know, when... when... You don't sort of go off to podcast new and leave me as the, the Andrew Ridgely of the podcast as you go off to award-winning fame and uh, all that kind of stuff. I'm the Andrew Ridgely. You're the one with a, yeah. um, with a global, uh, yeah. globally famous 80s no. podcast. So, um, no, whatever so. happens, we share the royalties. that quote at the end I think it's from Andrew and he says Wham was never going to be middle-aged an essential and pure representation of us as youths is what it was and um, I think there's something quite moving about that because I suppose you and I you know we've been around for long enough to see so many of the bands that were around when we were young kind of get back together on a series of occasions and and um, it's actually quite unusual for such a successful band to retain that kind of feeling of there being this fleeting moment in time when they're kind of embracing the energy of their youth. And if you were there, you were there. And if you weren't, then you get to watch old footage of it. But um, it has that kind of feeling, doesn't it, of just like this flame that burns really brightly. Oh, no, I'm going to burst into candle in the wind now. Aren't I? <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? <laughs> it wouldn't have been the same if you'd seen Andrew Ridgely at one of those weekenders at the Minehead Butlins on a kind of October evening with you know, one of Bananarama, that would just be painful to watch and weird. And if you want to watch Wham, go and watch Wham. There's plenty of it. You don't need to go on some sort of reunion tour or one of those weird things. You know, There's plenty of other people doing it, but um, you know, Wham were what they were. And yeah, let's keep them there and enjoy it. Yeah, well, as I say, it's, um, again, it reminded me a little bit of that rooftop gig at the end of Get Back where you see all the people gathered below and you know that you're kind of witnessing uh, a document that's this little bit of pop history that's just this fleeting moment in time. Do you think that their friendship sums up, you know, some of the best elements of a good a good pal that someone might have. I think so, because, again, I think you kind of see at the beginning, and obviously the, the fact of how they met, but, you know, Andrew took George under his wing, literally, at the school, as that dynamic changed. And yet, at the end of Live Aid, when we see that, you know, proud dad look, um, and I think the fact that... The, they it did come across in such a way that you know they were both respectful of each other this wasn't you know obviously we didn't see everything behind the scenes but how it's portrayed anyway is that you know andrew's very accepting of 
what's going on because they're such good friends because they've known each other at this point for what, 10 15 years we see that because if these people aren't friends if they're just kind of ships passing in the night or you know budding musicians who are paired together in in a super group or a pop star thing i mean i know you know some of them have made really great music but these are friends who've gone on to do it they they are that kind of epitome of you know they've started in school and gone and, and built from there and it is a bit of a kind of not rags to riches but you know that they've started from the bottom and worked their way up into what they became yeah. um and i think it's hard to do that if you're not friends you can do things on a professional basis but i think if you're that young you have to be friends um because you know again you know these are teenagers who are going through many changes anyway and the fact that they got through that and still got to do wham and you know and the fact that you know andrew refers to george as yog is kind of the touching thing because yeah. everyone knows him as george michael but because he knows him he's yog he's, he's his friend you know, it is a touching thing yeah, I think it's a beautiful story of people complementing each other really well and being mutually supportive in a way that we should all probably try and be more like if we can. Especially at Christmas. Uh... Hey, Circa! Well, as we wrap it up and send it with a note saying cheers for listening, we encourage you to be the kind of friend who does their best to turn a mate's bright spark into a flame. Bad boys. And girls. Stick together. I've been Kat. I've been Rich. And this has been Don't You Want Me. No time.